Greetings and welcome to the Quest for Wisdom podcast, where we search for nuggets of wisdom from the lives of some truly amazing people. Today's guest is James Regal. James is a stand-up comedian and producer who now runs the Barcelona Comedy Roast Battle, which is part of the International Roast Battle League. If you're confused about what a roast battle entails, then check the links in the description now. He also runs a show called Fake Jews, which he has taken to Edinburgh Fringe this year. Today we talk about why there is so much pleasure in insulting people on stage, cancel culture, Jews in comedy, epigenetics and ancient civilizations. James is a hard-working and passionate human who is constantly on the rise. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Finally, if you like the show, then please like, follow or subscribe on whichever platform you're using. Welcome, 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 James Regal, to the 11th episode of the Quest for Wisdom podcast. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel great. Thanks uh, very much for inviting me on, man. This is uh, exciting. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you here. Um, <clears throat> so you are a comedian. You are a show organizer. You are a PR freelancer person. Um, and you are also now the host or co-host of the Barcelona Roast Battle, which has now been in the World Roast Battle League. Yeah, that's am right. I I'm sorry, am I totally butchering all of these accolades? <laughs> uh, you were pretty much nearly there. Um, so I, I don't co-host the show in terms of on stage. I, I produce the show right. um, with uh, a couple of other guys and then occasionally also uh, do some of the roast battles in it. Um and yeah, the the global thing. So it's cool. So so roast battle is is for those who are listening who maybe don't know. It's it's a style of comedy show where two comedians go on stage and they make really mean jokes mm -hmm. about each other. Um, but they're not kind of enemies. Like the the best roasts are when you're up there with someone you really like or even love because the audience can see it. You know, the, the the meanness is coming from a place of love, much like you know you would be having banter with your mates in 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 the pub or wherever. Um, so you know it's it's a it's a concept that anyone can do and and uh i decided to to start doing them here in barcelona um around about a year ago actually um we weren't the first there was some other kind of quite infrequent versions but i wanted to do something a bit more kind of creative with it so we did it and then about five six months in someone suggested that we contact the kind of original creators of roast battle in la and just tell them what we're doing you know show them some videos and pictures and uh it just so happened at the time that they um so they have like a global league which is mostly u.s cities mm -hmm. but also they had london and tokyo kind of competing against each other they send in their best battles to this youtube show and then the presenters there like they give them different scores and create a league table so they said look we're actually looking to expand um the league by a few cities uh, there's a few cities in the running and uh, we'd love you guys to to just keep sending us footage of your shows send us your battles so we did for about another six months and then uh, at the beginning of this year they, they told us we'd love to have you in the league um what that means really is is that that's now providing a really great platform for the comedians here in barcelona mm. to to have their jokes uh amplified um they get a lot of views on instagram because they're reshared by the, the global roast battle brand um we obviously get featured on this youtube show so it's really kind of just growing everything here and 
we've actually got one um i think it would be long gone by the time this comes out but we're doing a, a roast battle barcelona versus london uh, event this this coming week as we're speaking now um so yeah our first kind of international event so yeah it's really fun really fun stuff where are you from in the uk i'm from london north oh. london specifically so will you be will you be rooting for london or barcelona well i'm i'm on team barcelona so Ooh, 100%, controversial yeah controversial uh, he's going against his. He's going against his roots. <laughs> yeah, listen, I've not lived there for nine years. I, I, I'm fully, I'm fully in with Barcelona now. But yeah, it is. I guess it is kind of funny because, uh, yeah, it'd be two two Londoners basically on stage uh, taking the piss out of each other. But yeah, well, that's going to be very exciting. And I would say to people, anyone listening now, I'll put a link in the whatever description you're reading on whatever platform you're on. I'll put a link. I would say pause it, watch some of the clips on Instagram. So you know what a roast is on about if you don't know it. They have, the clips are very funny. I've seen a lot of them. And it is amazing because it really is giving people huge exposure now. You know, Barcelona, even though it's got a lot of people in it, it's still fairly small. The scene is still very small and you still see the same type of people around. Um, and getting that international exposure, I think, is just... It'll launch certain people. It'll launch certain people's careers. Um, it'll get them... It'll get them just such an amazing level of exposure. I think it's just such a cool opportunity, and I don't know. It's it's an amazing. It's a, it's a stepping stone. Like when I when I first joined the sort of creative scene a few years ago, just like a little bit of storytelling, poetry, whatever. The scene was so small then, so tight knit, and it's slowly getting growing a little bit. You know, with the comedy clubhouse now, everybody's got a hub basically to anyone can really run an event if they want. Um, and you see the same people, but you also get a ton of tourists coming in. And it's like it's growing. And all the creative people that are just dotting around, hopelessly writing things and not knowing what to do with it. Now they've got a little place to do it. And I think it's so cool. So I'd say thank you for presenting this opportunity to people because it's wicked. Yeah, it's fantastic. You know, and you said it's great for the individuals involved, but it's also great for the scene in general. I think when we see visiting comedians come here for the first time, particularly the Americans or even the, the British ones, they don't realize how developed our comedy scene is here now. It, it's great. And, you know, whether that's local people like Catalan people, Spanish people that are doing comedy in English or, um, you know, expats or, you know, people that have moved here recently that are ever really pro level, the likes of Tamer Catan, for instance, uh, Michelle Wolf, even, you know, really really strong comics here it's and there's there's so many shows now every week in english it's um it's it's nice to be able to do our little bit just to show this kind of roast audience that hey you know barcelona's got some real talent in general and um you know they should they should come here and, and do shows of their own if they're, if they're comedians watching it so yeah i think it's really cool that like obviously most people are at the the obviously some people have been doing it for a few more years but most people are still at the start of their careers because most people are like most people are below 40 at least um but then i've been reading i've just read billy Connolly's autobiography and now i'm reading jimmy carr's is like self-help book i'm not a huge fan of jimmy carr's one at the moment i think it's a bit boring to be honest billy Connolly's was pretty interesting and just like seem more authentic jimmy carr seems a bit just like a money grab to me it's meant to be like a self-help through the through a comedian and i feel like he's just someone's offered him money to do the book and he's just done it half-heartedly really yeah well, um, he's got all that tax to pay back he's got all that tax to pay back yeah but <laughs> Alleg I, allegedly yeah allegedly. allegedly but i um it, like he mentions in it and the same with billy Connolly. you know jimmy carr mentions like knocking around the scene and seeing like um 
I can't remember the names, but you know, it's like seeing some well-known comedians. They were just like hanging out in the same spots because they started at the same time. Um, and then you you hear like you know Joe Rogan talking about when he's like back in the day hanging around the scene, whatever, and just like all the famous comics are hanging around together and then end up being famous. And it's like here within this scene, I didn't realize, for example, how famous Michelle Wolf was. I like, cause I've I've not watched that much comedy in my life. Um, I'm starting to now, but I didn't realize how famous she was. I know, I, I saw a clip of her tagged or something, and then went on her Instagram. She's got like half a million followers. Mm. And she's here. She's here like regularly performing. And then when they said that um, they put like in the in the clubhouse here, when they said that Louis C.K. had come to visit, I thought they were joking. Ah. You know, like I thought they, I thought they were. I thought it was just like, oh, come to show up, go up, which is meant to be for like mainly amateurs, really, um, and beginners who are going to practice like crap material, basically. And then they were like, oh, Louis C.K. turned up. And I was like, aha, good one. Uh, and then I saw a picture of him hung up in the, in the clubhouse. I was like, oh, my God. Like, because it is Barcelona. It's a major city. And these people are going to come here at some point. Mm. And if they do, and they type in comedy, comedy clubhouse is going to come up. And then you are going to get more people. And as the scene gets more established, people are going to specifically come here instead of going to places like London or New York or something where the scene is like long standing. So I think it's so cool so cool to be here at like that tipping point where it's becoming like more mainstream really yeah and i think in the long term my hope is that barcelona becomes almost like the comedy capital of uh of mainland europe anyway and then in terms of spain it becomes a hub because i also i do some gigs in ibiza sometimes with big british expat community there they have no comedy uh, and certainly in the winter there's absolutely bugger all to do because everything in Ibiza is shut it's so seasonal I just did a show there this week and um, I bring some comedians from here I bring some comedians over from the UK um, but quite often what I try and do is say like hey like come into Barcelona do a show in Barcelona then we'll fly to Ibiza and then fly over from there I think that's the start of something where we, we should be able to connect all these towns along the the coast of spain that's you know whether they're expat towns or tourist towns all the way down to kind of alicante and malaga that i'd love that to become almost like a circuit so uh, you know a touring comic can come in do barcelona a couple of nights and then do like almost a week of shows mm. throughout the rest of spain and, and we can somehow facilitate that because then it becomes a lot more worth their while to make that trip uh and and get like good money for it because that's the one thing that's missing here really is the money when you compare to you know shows in if you headline a show in london even if you're kind of just a kind of touring comic of five years you can get 200 300 quid mm. and like no one's getting paid that much here unless it's a corporate event um the money's it's still more about the art than the money which is beautiful but i think over time as we build our audience and and, and that kind of thing i think we'll, we'll start to see better paid gigs for people as well yeah, because I think that that's the the weird thing, not just weird, but like for some reason um, with the arts. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I'm, I'm organizing a festival coming up and, you know, I've thought I have some ideas to organize some events and everything. But for some weird reason, if I was organizing like uh, Calzotada or something like that, there would be no niggle in the back of your mind about making money on it because that's the whole point of doing an endeavor like that. You know, you're ultimately, yeah, you'd be providing something nice, but you need to make money because that's what you use for life. Mm. But it's like, for some reason with the arts, people seem to like feel guilty about charging. There's, cause there's a whole thing about art should be free. And I understand that there should be free art available, but also people are pouring loads of time 
and their own money into making art and then not charging people to receive that art. And it's like, I don't know whether it comes down to um, not like, a, I suppose it's almost like a fear of failure and a fear of rejection because it's like, well, if I charge 10 euros for my ticket to come here and no one comes, I'm a total failure. Whereas if it's free, I know people will come. And it's like, it's this weird thing with art. It's like artists are scared to charge things. And mm. I want to see, I want to see it commercialized a bit. Obviously, you don't want money to be the sole reason you do anything because that leads to unhappiness and it leads to poor quality in general with anything. Mm. You know, you want the essence of it to be, I'm going to make this as best as I possibly can for myself and the people involved. But you have to make money. And I felt like the comedy clubhouse is like one of the, first basis that's kind of commercializing it a bit but it's still totally reasonable mm. you know like cheap drinks reasonable tickets but you want people to make money because they need it people like people need money to be able to be comfortable enough to be able to write and do their stuff because if they don't have money then they're just stressed about not having any money which artists if they don't have another job which i suppose most have to have another job unless you're earning a decent amount but it's like it's really crazy and that's something i would really like to see is people rewarded for their work. And that's one of the things that if I'm organizing events, I would like to be able to give people a, a, a nice, just, just like a little, just a little bit. Like when I perform here sometimes, like some of the events that I get asked to perform at, I might get like 10 euros for it. But that 10 euros is sweet. That 10 euros is the sweetest 10 euros I've ever earned because it's like, you do, it's just you doing that. Mm -hmm. Someone's asked you to come and they're paying you 10 euros to do that and you get a free entry. So you get a little bit of a night out and you get 10 euros and that's so sweet but if that could be 100 or 200 or 300 not for me necessarily now but like at some point and other people can be like okay this could be a career or at least a side hustle as opposed to just a hobby it's like i don't know it, it's a sweet yeah idea. i think i think you're spot on it's like the money brings the freedom to be able to do it more and get better at it right and you know <laughs> There's plenty of free events and events where you wouldn't expect to get paid in comedy. Most of those will be open mics because the, the kind of contract there is, listen, this is a space for you to come and try whatever you want. And we know it won't necessarily be good or polished. It might be awful, but you need, particularly in comedy, you can't, it's one of the only art forms, if not the only art form that you cannot practice at home on your own. You, mm. you, you can recite it to yourself in the mirror. You can write and rewrite, but you don't know until there's an audience in front of you, a real audience, not just a couple of friends or your family, whether that is like, it's, I, I had someone describe it as, you know, the audience is your instrument. If you yeah. want to put it in musical terms, you're trying to play the audience for the moments of laughter but also the moments of silence or concern or whatever it is um but back to your point on on money so you know there is there is space for free but you're right it's, it's it is hard as an artist to to put a value on it because it seems a weird thing to value i'm just standing up and talking for five ten twenty maybe an up to an hour of time what is the value on that and hopefully the value you're bringing is you know enjoyment laughter disconnection from you know the outside world for a little bit of time mm -hmm. um and you know particularly you talked about running events i think you know i run as we've said i run some of my own events my first uh priority is like okay i want to try not to lose money on the event yeah and i want to make sure everyone who does the event is paid what they need to be paid and i'm willing to take a financial hit to make sure they're still paid just ideally not loads yeah, yeah. um getting to the point now is you know building the audiences a bit more 
uh, these events are starting to make like a small profit, but it's not loads and loads. Um, you know, I don't want to get too much nitty gritty, but there's definitely something in Barcelona about kind of the, the price of tickets seems like 10 euros seems to be the top level. Yeah. And, and the, the, the sort of where resistance meet, you meet resistance is like anything up to 12 and above. Uh, for these like amateur shows if mm. a big name rolls into town they'll charge 40 50 euros like louis ck's ticket was 45 euros to go and see him in the theater obviously so yeah i think um what's his face um what's the aussie guy uh, jim jeffries jim jeffries yeah i think his was 35 yeah something which i thought was quite reasonable to be honest like because you're in a bigger venue ultimately yeah i just i think with all of it you know it's you're not just asking people to invest money you're asking them to invest time and, and concentration, you know, and sit down for an hour without their phones and listening to you. And uh, you got to look at it as like, it's a, you're there to give them something, not necessarily to take their time and money away from them. I mm -hmm. find that's my philosophy. So, you know, if I'm going to do a show that's somewhat work in progress, uh, you know, say I want to do like an hour, I want to try and do an hour for the first time. So the most I've done so far is like 30 minutes. Mm -hmm the first however many times I do that I'm not going to charge money I might ask for donations at the end mm -hmm. you know, that's the thing you know pay what you want is a thing in comedy so you get some money that you can then put into your advertising or whatever um but mostly it's just like the first thing in my head is do I feel that after three years of comedy am I ready to to give an hour's worth of entertainment to people or am I just getting them in the room because I feel like I want to try talking for an mm, hour and yeah. see how it is. So it's 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 a very and, and other different people have different philosophies on this. Some people might be like, well like, if, you know, I'm just gonna try it and see how it goes, how will I know otherwise? And other people I've I probably fall inside of it's like, okay, have I got a good 15 minutes? Yes. Have I got a good 20 minutes? Okay, yeah, probably. Is my half an hour great? Not yet. So half an hour is the most I'm willing to make someone listen to me do comedy. I have enough material to do an hour, but it's not an hour's worth of great material you would pay 20 euros for, you know? So, yeah, I think with any art, but particularly with comedy, because of the concentration that you're expecting from people. Yeah. I think you just, you need to put the audience first and not yourself. That's something that I really find that when I come to comedy, um, I, it requires a huge amount of concentration because if you don't like the people, you still have to engage and you don't want to just, I don't want to sat there with a face like a slapped ass, you know, because it's just not that fair really. Yeah. And so then I have to force a smile on my face. You know, you don't have to force a laugh. You have to just force a, a smile, which to me requires a lot of effort because I've got resting bastard face. Um, <laughs> so... So like I've got a it requires a lot of effort, and then sometimes there'll be a second show on afterwards, and people are like, "Oh, are you staying for the second show?" I'm like, "I can't, I can't do it. I'm, I can't concentrate for another hour because it, it it's a it's a big energy exchange, and obviously if you're seeing people who are really good and really polished, then it flows, but if you're seeing people who are not so polished, then it is it it, it is a drag sometimes. Yeah, and, and then the audience picks up on that. They they're smart. They can tell if you're there for yourself if you're there for them i think um and you have to be there for them because like i said like but it, it, it's a two-way exchange if we, there was an audience there you wouldn't you could still stand up and talk but it wouldn't it wouldn't be fun for you mm. um 
and they're there to you know because they 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 want you to do well they want to laugh they didn't come well with the possible exception of one or two people sometimes it shows who are just there to misbehave most of them are there because they want to to laugh they want to have a good time um they will do their best to laugh when you're funny um and when you're not they'll they still want you to to be funny they won't they won't just be like boo get off your rubbish mm. the worst thing you can do and this is something i've you know i've only in the last year really got my head around because i'm still relatively new to it is you know people talk about this phrase bombing right mm. so if you're up on stage and you're telling jokes and it's getting no laughs and it's getting really uncomfortable the worst thing you can do uh, actually no I'll spin it. the best thing you can do is to acknowledge that mm -hmm. uh and and vocalize the fact that the joke didn't land or things yeah. aren't going well because that breaks the tension audience and they will laugh at, even though you're not saying funny they'll laugh at that mm. because you've recognized something in the room and an energy the, the worst thing you can do is just keep going and keep going and keep going continue to bomb continue to bomb and never acknowledge it because then they feel uncomfortable for you you know what it's like when you watch like a comedian that's just doing really really badly and they've never once said they are you think oh my god do they do they think they're good or do they like you can tell in their face they know they're bad but i feel really bad for them and now i don't feel like laughing uh it's really horrible and mm -hmm. you know that's fine it can happen but you have to you have to acknowledge it i think and then that's you know you, you always you you provide something that at least you provide a, an acknowledgement of like hey like we understand the energy of this room together <laughs> you know yeah it's like um a while back i think it was what's his name sid singh or something like that yeah. um and he he was like giving tips on people on the sharp garb and one of the first things he said was um always address the elephant in the room so like there was a guy that was there that was like fucking like six foot eight or something he's like he's like go on and say yeah, I'm really fucking tall. Because then the audience is like, oh, you are. like, And then yeah. they get someone on your side and it's like, you go on and be like, as you'll see, I'm a fat fuck or something like that. And then people are like, oh, yeah, he is. We know it's that as well. And it's like gets them on your side and like builds this little weird relationship. And I think that to me, that's like the most, it's the most important, the, mo the most interesting thing about comedy is like you the, the human to human thing. Because I was listening to a lot of jokes, you know, that some... A lot of people don't really have a punchline in their joke. They're, they'll tell a story and they can be quite theatrical with their movement. There's quite a few people here who are very theatrical. And what they're saying is like, if you had it written down and you read it, it'd be like, that's not very funny. But then they're theatrical with it and people are like laughing and facial expressions and all this different stuff. And people just like latch onto it. And it's nice. To me, I like I like the, the classic punchline and the... You know, when, when they tell a few jokes and then right at the end of the set, it'll tie in and they'll, I don't know what it's called, but when they tie it up. Like a callback. A callback. Like, yeah. I, I'm like, to me, that's sort of like really satisfying. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, like, yeah. like, because it, again, it's like building that sense of community. It's like, oh, yeah, we were there at the beginning and now you're doing it at the end and now we're all together in this. And it's like, yeah. but I also, for my own personal, my, what I like to do is like, I'm pretty monotone in my talk. And I like to just say things really deadpan. And then most people just don't know if I'm joking or not. So I was like, I got a poem about, um, it's called Genocidal Spider. And it's about, it was based on Birds Aren't Real. Like, have you heard of the Birds Aren't Real movement? Is that the one where people think they're like cameras flying around yeah, spying yeah. on us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so I was like, so yeah, so I recently found out the birds aren't real. 
Um, and then obviously like some people laugh, but there was a woman at the front and one of the times and she looked so concerned. And I was like, yeah, so actually uh, the government recalled 15 billion birds and replaced them for, for flying drones. She was like, oh my God. She was like looking to herself like, what the fuck? How did I not know this? And I was just like thinking, I was laughing so much to myself thinking, I hope this woman goes away and is genuinely concerned. <laughs> then she's like researching like birds aren't real and she'll see this massive movement with like hundreds of thousands of people that have just joined along in this thing. And I'm like, this is just so great. Yeah, I'm interested to know, so because you, yeah, you do spoken word. Have you, have you tried a comedy set? I think I saw you do one. I've one. done a couple. Yeah. How do you find the, the difference in terms of how you feel up there and the way you're trying to connect with people? Or is it the same to you? I'm, I'm interested to know about that. I find it's way easier to connect with comedy. Um, I thought I've done three, two or three comedy sets, just which is straight comedy. Usually I do. I've done a few poetry comedy sets. And then in the middle of each poem, I'll like link it with some just comedy talking, you know, so, and I really like that. Um, that feels the most natural to me. But when I went on and I did some straight comedy set, I felt way less nervous than when I do um, poetry, which I did not expect. Yeah, that's really interesting because I always figured, you know, there's one key difference is obviously is, is that you could write a funny poem, I guess, where you might expect laughter. But when you're doing sort of straight spoken word, it's like, how do you know what you're saying is going well because you don't have that laughter cue, you get an applause at the end and maybe you can gauge if it if you feel like it was a polite applause or genuine, mm. like rapturous, like grateful applause. But in comedy, yeah, you, every few seconds you you get the encouragement or discouragement of laughing or not laughing. So it's, it's interesting that you felt less nervous. Less nervous with the comedy. With comedy, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Because the pressure is to, to get people to laugh. That's your feedback. Yeah, but I think that... So I that's why I expected it to be way worse however when i then when i did it it felt more like i was just talking to my mates and i felt like that is the role that i used to play with my mates back at home you know like talking shit telling stupid stories and talking shit which is what it is so it just felt normal um and i would say that usually i'm disappointed with my delivery in poetry i think that my writing is fairly good um like I'm satisfied with the level I'm at for the amount of time that I've been doing it. My performance is bad and I'm, wor I, I'm working on that. Mm. Whereas I thought that with the comedy, my performance, I was really happy with the way it went. My, my material, I knew my material was like a five or six out of 10, you know, I got some last at some point. I knew it was going to be like that because I hadn't put a huge amount of effort or thought into it. I just wanted to try just to see what it'd be like. Mm. So it was like, yeah, it was just average like that. But then spoken word when I'm doing like, I've got a few which are more personal um, and those are horrible to perform most of the time. Like even though, cause they're, they're, that's pure vulnerability, you know? And that's, I think often the difference with spoken word is that you're opening up your emotions and you're saying like, this is raw me written kind of from the heart. And if someone were to reject it, that would hurt a lot. That's the initial feeling. And you're right, you have absolutely no idea if people like it or not. Mm. Um, so it's just pure silence. But I noticed before that when I went to like here, people are very receptive to everything. People laugh a lot. People come up and talk to you a lot afterwards. Um, back in England, I did some of my funny poems. And when I first performed them, it was just like silence in the crowd. 
And I was like, oh my God, I'm bombing, I'm bombing. And I was like, I was still quite new to it. And I was like, this is fucking terrible. And I couldn't wait for it to finish. It was like 10 minutes, I did about three or four. Then at the end of like, a few people came up and they were like, oh my God, that was so funny. And I was like, <laughs> why didn't you laugh? Like, tell me that. And I was like, all of them. And then I was like, wait a minute, I'm in England. Like people are generally, and it was like performing in a pub. I was like, people are generally more kind of like serious. Yeah. And I'm like, nah, okay, this is probably a cultural thing. Like to make people laugh here is probably going to be a lot more difficult than it will be in Barcelona where people are just like merry. And yeah. you've always got like one or two people in the crowd who are just crack up. And then soon, and then once you've got those one or two people and everyone's cracking up and it's like, you just need like a couple of those catalysts in there that like break it. But yeah, the spoken word is, is, um, yeah, it's horrible sometimes to yeah. be honest. It's interesting what you say about the audience. I, I feel that, feel that here too. And I, it might, I might be false. I just, I don't gig a lot in London. Like I have done a few times and just mostly open mics done all right, but it was kind of quite early on. Uh, and I did some stuff at Edinburgh last year, which went okay as well. Um, but I do feel here like everyone is way more friendly in the audience. Yeah. And I think part of that is to do with the majority of the audience are not native English speakers. Mm -hmm. So I feel like they, they're somehow more forgiving. Um, you'll get bigger laughs than maybe you expect sometimes. There's also the danger that you'll you'll use a joke that maybe they don't get the reference or the wordplay was too intricate mm. and their English wasn't as strong. So it, it you know, I love wordplay jokes and uh, sometimes I'll do one I'll do one on stage and I I might get like a couple of laughs or a groan and they're really just for my amusement. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's given me this slight fear of performing in front of British crowds who I who I know are more demanding. Um, they're more willing to to jump in and heckle and try and be the funny one. Um, like I said, I did this, this gig in Ibiza the other day, 90% British people, mm. like 30 plus. And uh, in fairness, like I was just emceeing, but you know, which again was, was also hard to like, I need to connect with these people. Uh, and it went fine. Like, I actually really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. But I do think we have very forgiving audiences here. But it's it's such a great place to just like learn your craft in a nice environment um, and understand how to write, how to perform. And I think when some of us, like there's a girl here called Irene uh, Menaguzzi, Argentinian comedian who performs in Spanish and, and, and in English on our scene. And I saw her go over to London to perform at one of the top clubs there, and she absolutely smashed it. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, she did. You know, Irena, like she. I know who she is, but I don't really know her personally. She's a fantastic comedian, great writer, but they they absolutely loved her. Um, so it just kind of shows that you know, yeah, like I, I don't want to put the audiences down here at all. They're they're brilliant, and and they're getting more and more varied and different. They tend to be a little younger because of the whole like expat Erasmus vibe. Um, but there is definitely uh, a difference when you go back to the UK or even I've performed in the States as well, like completely different mm. in, in other ways. So, Because I feel like British people are quite awkward and then they're awkward. But then if they've had a few drinks, then they're a little bit rowdy. Yeah. So I'm like, it's, it's quite different between that. Because I've done a fair few just open mics in London. Just when I'm back, like I try and squeeze in as many as I can because there's zillions in London. Um and yeah, some of them you go to and people are like dead quiet. 
there's a few of them which are more like tight-knit communities that people are much more receptive but here it's just people are so friendly so it's like it's way less uncomfortable i think being on the stage and talking to people just because it's just easy to talk to european people really that most people yeah. are just really friendly and that was going to bring me on to my question about with the roast battle are there cultural differences and if so like how do those cultures clash because one culture one level of mean might be acceptable whereas another culture might not yeah that's uh it's an interesting question i don't know if i have a read on it yet to be honest with you i i think the individuals that come to our show no matter where they're from hopefully know what they're getting into but i don't know if that i know for instance a uh, a french person who comes to watch our roast battle in english are there because the French love that humor or because they're just a French person that likes that humor. Do you know mm. what I mean? We do our best in the promotion to really explain, listen, this is no holds barred. You're going to hear some pretty screwed up stuff occasionally, uh, but it's a safe space to do that. Um, you know, and people may have their opinions on this who are listening, but you know, we, we do allow uh, jokes that play on like racial stereotypes, sexual stereotypes. Like it's, it's all, it's all allowed um, because they trust that the comedians are doing it coming from uh, a space of love uh, and accepting of each other. When the comedians meet up um, before, like you often say, listen, like, do you have any red lines? Is there anything I can't talk about? I know, mm -hmm. you know, a parent dying or, you know, a particular thing. And you respect that. Um, but to your original question, I, I think there is a difference in culture. When I see the American battles, they are, they can be much more brutal. They're much more uh, direct, shall I say? There's less wordplay. A lot of it is just like I'm going to say something really aggressive and and use like a lot of swear words. And they're that they are very funny, um, but they're a lot more brutal there because I think they're used to that culture and I think it's kind of an American thing. Whereas you look at the London ones, also brutal, but I think British humour is much more about sarcasm, irony, yeah. wordplay. Word um sometimes just being silly and surreal um so i i love watching those battles but they are different to the states and i think here we, we're somewhere in between our comedians obviously from all over the world as well um so yeah it's it, it's hard to say i i think um what we try to do is impress on people that when you're up there doing it you're not making a best man speech you're not mm. or you know bridesmaid speech you're not there saying Oh, uh, Connor once uh, like pooped himself at school. Like, isn't that funny? Not saying you did, Connor. By the way, anyone? I did here? when I was like six. I mean, we all did it once, right? <laughs> <laughs> I remember it so vividly. Yeah, uh, I thought it was a fart. It wasn't. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not that. It's like it's a joke writing competition, right? Mm. So there has to be a setup and a punchline. So it could be about you pooping yourself, but it's not like. Hey, pooped himself. That's funny, right? It's mm. like Connor wants pooped himself at school. Deliver a punchline based on that setup. Um, but when we see now we're sending the clips into this roast battle league, it's really interesting because the people that watch it and critique it, they are American. Mm -hmm. And they do seem to get a bit lost when we start doing the more subtle wordplay jokes and we're not as we don't do it such an american style they almost like downgrade us for that because the the humor is just really really different is that yeah. kind of what you were getting that at? is exactly what i was getting at um well yeah partly that but partly like do you think that 
I mean, you partly you, you said there that the Americans are very brutal. Are there are there countries which have seemed to be like a bit more vanilla? Um, I don't know about vanilla. Um, I mean, I've watched some of the battles from Canada because Toronto is in the league, and again, they're they're a bit like the American, well, just like Canada, they like the Americans, but just like I think toned down a little bit more, like a bit friendlier, which makes sense because they're Canadians. Uh, the guys in Tokyo, they're all mostly expats. Okay. Um, look, there's definitely, there, there is a roasting style. And within that, there's some kind of sub-styles, I think. But um, I think in terms of the audience here, uh, the, the best jokes that land are the ones that are about the most obvious, like you said before, addressing the elephant in the room. What someone looks like, how they're dressed, how they sound, something about where they're from all that kind of stuff. Sometimes I'm a bit guilty of overwriting my roast jokes because mm -hmm. I really like really playing around and being creative with it. And I deliver it and it just, it doesn't get the the real punch that I yeah. wanted it to. I still love it as a joke, um, but perhaps it, it, it went either went over someone's head or it was too wordy and needed word economy to make it a bit more interesting. Um, you know, but that that's one of the hardest things about that show is, you know, any other comedy show you, you go and you write jokes and you practice them at open mics and you see what works and how you can change it around. But this is like a one shot true, gig. You know, true. you've written these jokes, you have one time, you get five jokes each uh, and you're in a competition with someone. Like it's a lot of pressure to write good material. So it's, it's actually a really, really good exercise for people to, to just get their joke writing on point. Yeah. It's like, um, I, I'm also guilty a little bit of what you say there of sometimes overwriting things. And sometimes I'll write, I'll write something and I'll think it's like the sickest line in the whole poem. And then it just, no, it just doesn't land. Like nobody really gets it. And to me, I'm like, oh, that's so good. Like why did they miss that? And then there'll be another part of it, which I don't think is that funny that for whatever reason lands so well. And you're like, oh, like you didn't, didn't think that through. Didn't think it would be like that, but yeah, it's, it's the audience tells you, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, like you, one of the golden rules of comedy, I think, is is write what you think is funny, and then eventually you'll find your audience. But in something like this, it's slightly different because, like that, you're not going to do that material again. So you have to really think like what's going to work. And I'll give you an example. So I was roasting a guy here called called Alec, um, and he had told me that his uh, his wife had left him a few years ago for his for his best friend and. Uh, and all this and he also i know him well and he hates it when people call him alex because his name is alec so i'd i'm gonna try and like kind of brutalize this but i had written a joke that was something around i had been calling him alec the entire time and then by like joke four i was like actually guys i'm sorry his name is alex um but i've been calling him alex with an x because he kept crying about how he wanted his ex back <laughs> okay now like that it sort of works as a joke but it didn't land at all Whereas earlier, I'd, all I had said was he looks like every character from the game Guess Who. And that got like a huge laugh because it's, you just look at him, you go, oh, yeah, I get that. Do you know what I mean? There wasn't so much to think about in the setup. Now, if I had a chance to go rewrite that Alex Alec joke, maybe I could make it a bit shorter, snappier, find another way of attacking it. But I didn't, I don't have that opportunity. Mm. So that's just like an example of where I sometimes get, I remember writing it down first time and laughing to myself going, oh, that's so smart. I love it. It's brilliant. I can't wait to do that one. I'm going to set it up throughout the entire thing. And then it just did. People didn't like it as much as I thought they would. Yeah, I suppose they don't know that he's told you 
that specifically as like one of the little things before that they tell you that his, his wife's left him or something. So no, they, so they knew that because I I'd, I'd mentioned I'd made a joke about his wife leaving earlier oh. on. So they had all the information. Oh. Uh, it just it just wasn't as funny as I thought it was, <laughs> you know, because I, I think I tried to be a bit a bit too clever. If, if I just made another joke about him being bald or wearing glasses, people would have loved it because you can see that right in front of you. You don't need to think about it, you know, so. Yeah, there is something very funny about bald people. <laughs> um, but that, I, I want to ask you about um, what role do you think that comedy plays in the... Um, in the setting of boundaries for what is socially acceptable in speech in general. So that's a long-winded way of saying, what's your opinion on the cancel culture debate? Yeah, I, I figured that might, where you might be getting at. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I'm sometimes conflicted with this uh, and uh, my attitude can change by the day. Um. So I, I guess where to start from with my perspective is I'm someone who generally tries to be respectful. I think I'm a naturally compassionate person. I hate seeing anyone victimized for no reason or any reason, really. Um, that's sort of a, a way I try to live my life and I, I don't have time for it. But then I'm a comedian and I do feel that that is a space where we should be allowed to explore ideas and ways of finding humor in, in pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. I think you can find humor in anything. Where we run into trouble is, as I said before, you can't practice at home. So, you know, you could be doing material for weeks, months, you know, even years sometimes with a joke that's, let's say, could be seen as controversial trying to find like the right way to say it. And the, the first few times you say it, it's just an idea in your head. It might come across as racist or sexist without the funny bit, but we can't know until we try it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think overall, it's kind of ridiculous that people hold comedians sometimes to higher standards than they hold actual like politicians and things, you know, it's, comedians are just saying words and I know words have meaning and they have power, but ultimately it's an art form. Um, on the other side of the fence, I do not really like comedy where it feels more like an angry manifesto mm. than trying to find humor in something maybe dark or controversial. Um, I do think you can punch down. I don't, you know, if some people say you must only punch up, I think you can punch down. But again, you better be bloody good at it. And the audience needs to maybe know that you're, there is a persona on stage and not a person. So, you know, Frankie Boyle, for instance, uh, to use an example, is a Scottish comedian who does really, really dark, horrible material that can be very nasty to people. But that's that's his shtick. Outside of that, he's a very liberal, sensitive, you know, he's a great writer. He's got a loving family. It's just his his thing. And I think the danger when people come into comedy for the first time is they see comedy like that. And they're like, oh, yeah, I can just say, like, the darkest, meanest shit possible mm. and people will laugh. And, and uh, you know, I, I've met some people on the scene here and they say, oh, it's not fair, you know, uh, cancel culture, too many woke comedians. And I, it's, it's nonsense. The issue is, is you don't know how to do it yet. So don't kill yourself and kill your 
comedy career before time by trying to do the darkest hardest it's the hardest thing yeah to, to be to be dark and funny and still keep the audience on your side it would be like saying i want to learn how to juggle and i'm going to start by juggling chainsaws that <laughs> yeah. are on you know like no you chop your arms off it's the same thing with jokes i'm not going to start comedy and go up and start talking about things that could be construed as racist or whatever um because i don't have the the talent and the tools to do it um sorry if i'm rambling on a bit but that's that no, is no. again it's in an art form where it seems easy right oh it's just someone standing on stage talking yeah ostensibly that's right in the same way that playing the trumpet is just blowing into a tube but you're not making music mm. you know so it's uh, uh I, i've got sort of a roundabout way of saying that i i don't like council culture but i think comedians have a responsibility to understand that the audience does have limits of, and they have their own limits of how far they can push it based on on their their talent and their experience basically yeah i totally agree with what you're saying and i'd not thought of the the point about um talent being involved because that is that really is something because it like like if you're if you're an amateur and you're going up for the first time and you go and you just say a load of racist sexist stuff then everyone's like who is this person why are they saying racist sexist stuff whereas like you like the likes of Frankie Boyle, Jimmy Carr can say basically whatever they want. Yeah, Jimmy Carr's a great example. Because they can, they've done it for ages. Um, and like, I'm, 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 because I'm split on this as well. And there is no right answer, I don't think. No. Um, I'm of the opinion that things should not be censored in general because it doesn't solve any issue. You know, like, I'm of the opinion that, like you say, comedians have responsibility any person on a stage anywhere, any person, any position of power has a huge responsibility. Um, you know, like releasing this podcast out, I have a responsibility to do my best not to spout shit, not to be an arsehole, not to try and warp anyone's mind with, with things that are like just unpleasant and unnecessary. You're doing a great job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like, but I, but I, I feel compelled to get people talking about these issues and discover the the answers themselves. I don't have the answers. I never will. But I think that I've I've heard a theory before that comedians and creatives are on the fringes of society. They are the ones. So the likes of comedians, film directors, TV producers, they're on the fringes of society, um, setting the limits of what's acceptable. And every so often, they'll go too far. And society will say, no, that's fucked up. Like, that, that's too far. Um, and then the limit gets pushed back a little bit. But I'm of the opinion that you need these, like, you need extreme people there because then you see those extreme people and you say, I, I don't want to be like that person. Or, you know, like, we, we naturally within us, I think, well, biologically, for example, we naturally have a suspicion of foreign things and people. You know, like... To keep us safe, people who do not fit into our tribe, we're suspicious of. So that could be, you know, it could be gay people. It could be people of different origins. It could be, you know, trans people now. Like, they don't fit into what you know. You you have a natural suspicion towards it because you don't understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that comedians commenting about these things in the space of a comedy show where everyone is in there... It's it. They're talking about things that people are thinking, you know. And I think that like when 
people people might have these thoughts and not really understand why they're having these feelings and thoughts against people and why they maybe they've been taught to be racist or you know grown up racist which a lot of people have because of you know like immigrants coming in and not that new uh, not that old sorry like so our parents generation our parents above like they're not that used to all these changes and then you've had radical changes of immigration you've had radical changes of you know more openly gay people and now you've got more like uh more openly trans people and all this and it's like it's a lot for people to take on board and i think that comedy and creator spaces are they they, they say the things that a lot of people are confused about mm. and then someone making a joke about it can make people think oh, okay maybe it's not so wrong that i'm having these strange thoughts these other people are and it like releases the tension mm. a bit and it kind of like whew, everyone's like oh, okay and obviously the more famous a comedian gets people will go towards their style or not and then you know some people they might like, like comedy that's not offending anyone and is very family friendly and i'm you know peter k i think is great because he does totally family friendly stuff and it's just like typical stuff talking about watching tv with your family or something like that it's like yeah you know and there is that that does exist and i just think that it's um we are at like for example something like extreme right extreme left neo-nazis all these people you can't just cancel those people because they don't cease to exist you know and then people those people if they don't have a space to express their views those views will then manifest in other ways inside them and if they feel repressed then that can turn into actions that maybe wouldn't have happened and then you know subcultures of all this thing developing whereas if you have you know neo-nazi group you can go and meet up in this little square and talk about your neo-nazi stuff or whatever um, you make it sound so nice <laughs> yeah and it's just like but you stay over there you can also post stuff on facebook and then the rest of the world will look at you and think yeah i'm not into that thanks but let we know that exists so let's be wary of that mm. but it, it brings up the whole conversation of okay why are these neo-nazi people thinking this why do we have people who are like really homophobic or really racist like why are these people because people inherently are not bad people have learned these behaviors and a lot of it just does come from suspicion and fear of the unknown and it's like by breaking it down and normalizing it i think that that is part of the role of comedy and by trying to cancel anything or censor anything you're not solving anything yeah you know i think um with with, with the, the problem with, with cancelling a cancel culture around comedy is that a lot of it comes from people who weren't in the room when the thing was said it wasn't for them you know they, they weren't the target audience um you know uh, there was the jimmy card joke he did recently about um travelers and the holocaust not a great joke i didn't i didn't love it either but you know that's his thing but that was said in the, in front to a live audience of people who had bought tickets to see a Jimmy Carr show and know that Jimmy Carr is going to say some pretty screwed up stuff, right? As soon as it's taken out of that context and put into a Daily Mail article, and of course someone reads that who doesn't find that thing in the slightest bit funny. Oh my god, that's terrible! We should cancel, you know. And it's like, yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't for you to listen to. Then, it's, don't the, then it's the responsibility of the person that publishes it. Exactly. Then they're the one that's spreading it around. They're effectively the one saying it. It's like, that's the total like yeah. ridiculousness of it. It's like, no one would know about it. 
if you didn't publish it in the bloody national newspaper, then... And, and why have they published it? Because it generates debate, it generates division, it generates conversation, and therefore generates money. So who's really being cynical there? Is it the comedian exploring, you know, the, the, the boundaries of what we find funny in, in, in our society and in, our, in ourselves? Or is it the, the kind of disingenuous hand-wringing of, of a media that's just trying to stoke up, uh, you know, clicks, basically? So, you know, I, I, I've watched comedians. I, 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 I will laugh at the darkest stuff, but sometimes someone says something, I'm like, ah, I don't think that's coming from a place that I feel comfortable with. I'm not going to turn around and say, oh, they're cancelled. If I was watching a show and the comedy wasn't what I liked, I might leave. Mm. But I'm not going to say that person should never do comedy again. I'm just, I'm just not going to watch that person. Yeah. I think, um, you know, you, we went slightly off comedy and more into just more you know people's political leanings and i i do think there is a distinction there because some of those people are generally trying to change the world in a way that will victimize um people in you know whether it's far right far any kind of extreme someone's going to lose out i i don't think that's quite the same as someone telling jokes about it um there might be some comedians who feel like they're there not to just make people laugh but to be truth tellers and and be part of a movement you know, there's a grey area there, I think. But I, I think we need to be wary of conflating those two things necessarily of like uh, the group of like neo-Nazis meeting up in a town square. And maybe you weren't doing this, but, uh, uh, the, the, you know, them and then like a comedian making like a mm. joke about a disabled person because they thought it was funny. You know, it's I think those are two different things going on there, personally. <laughs> uh, no, those are, those are two very distinct things. And I don't want to insinuate the comedians and neo-nazis um are the same thing but it was more just the point of censorship in general mm -hmm. um but because you either like the problem with censorship is that where do you draw the line you either have to start censoring you have to say i mean you can't quantify it um in general censorship doesn't work like i say it, it breeds resentment whether that's resentment within political movement or it's resentment from the people, you know, because the, the, the distinction, the, the comparison I was making was, you know, extreme political views like neo-Nazis and what would be considered extreme views about gay people, you know, like the, the individuals there, but then the comedians is the one that makes the link between the two. I'm going to joke about gay people. I'm also going to joke about Nazis and Jews. Um, well, I suppose more specifically about Jews or the mm. Holocaust, and then the comedian is the kind of link between those two, mm. commenting about the thing that those people have got their knickers in a twist about in the first place. Yeah, and then it's like they're hopefully easing some tension a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's interesting you say that. I, I, I'm afraid that I was going to segue that back onto my own comedy again, <laughs> but so um, I. I have like a, a show with a friend of mine. Uh, we are we're both from Jewish backgrounds, but neither of us ever been religiously Jewish. I grew up around a lot of like the kind of culture of being Jewish, like the food and the family and that kind of stuff, but never believed in God and, and never observed any of. I didn't even have a bar mitzvah or anything like that. And um, our show is called Fake Jews. Uh, it's like a pun on fake news. Oh, I saw that. Um, I thought that was very funny. Right, but that. That we call it that because I found myself writing a lot about myself as a Jewish person who's not really Jewish. Um, because 
you know, ostensibly when I go on stage, I am a straight white male. So mm. it's kind of a way of differentiating, not that like Jews are like, well, I guess we are a, minor a minority, but you know, it's not like you've never seen one before. Um, but it was just a way I found when I was writing to, to find interesting things to touch on. But I'd written some jokes that I really liked and that were working. But what I started to slowly figure out was it was they were playing on stereotypes in a way that was creating almost like a safe space for certain members of the audience to kind of enjoy those stereotypes in the way I didn't really mean them to be enjoyed, if that makes mm. sense. Like laughing at the fact that Jews love money as a stereotype, for instance, which is just purely just ridiculous. But people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I was getting like weird heckles about it. And I remember stepping off stage one time and being like, oh, that just felt off. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this material if that's what the energy I'm creating. So I went away and, and thought about it and I started to rewrite some of the jokes. So they're, they're less just using a stereotype to, to get a ha 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 and more exploring that stereotype, um, exposing the fact that we laughed at a joke that was about Jews loving money and then laughing at the fact that we laughed at that and then exposing how ridiculous yeah, that is. Yeah, I was going to say that. I, you know, I, I had this joke where I was like, oh, I, um, I dated a girl who ended up being, you know, she ended up being a sex worker, basically, and she was charging 200 euros an hour. So because I'm Jewish, I started to figure out, like, what was the value of the sex I got for, for free? You know, you know it's, like, it's kind of a clumsy joke, but like it always, would always get a laugh. But then I kind of developed into saying, like, OK, that's a joke about Jews loving money. We're all laughing at that, um, you know, because they do um unlike all the other religions of course who hate money you know and i just start like listing examples from like you know catholic church wealth and you know some you know dubai and being you know, an islamic state and all that kind of stuff so it's like again uh there are actually jokes in that people listening like come and see the show and you'll see uh, i'm brutalizing my own material a little bit but it's like yeah it's, it's having that sensibility as the artist and be like what what is the energy that i want to create from this material do i just want to like laugh at you know, do I just want to punch down at people because it's easy? Or do I want to find a way where we can laugh at ourselves for those prejudices that we for some reason have because of, you know, media, society, our own upbringing, etc. For me, that's that's far more interesting. That being said, love a good dick joke. Yeah. yeah. Like, it doesn't have to be cerebral all the time. Um, but it's just farts. kind of, yeah. Farts, can't, can't go wrong with farts. Farts, dicks vaginas period it's all it's all there it's all funny um but that's that's sort of where i would like to get to as i develop the talent for joke writing is writing sort of short snappy jokes that everyone can relate to but finding a way to bring it around to sort of what it means to me and, and ultimately <laughs> sounds really pretentious like make people think a little bit um i Ultimately, I want them to laugh. I want them to go away thinking that was hilarious, but also just to, to slightly change the the perception that you have of either a group or of yourself and what what you kind of find funny. That's that's an area I would like to 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 be in. Uh, ultimately, as I kind of move down the line in this, because the, the strange thing is that with something like this, I mean, what do you think is the responsibility of a part of a marginalized group, for example, a Jew? Um, a black person, uh, you know, like the 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 classic marginalized groups. So what do you think is the responsibility, for example, in the case of a Jew who is doing comedy to not 
exacerbate that stereotype by making like money jokes and all the classics because a lot of those type of jokes I only know those stereotypes because Jews talk about those stereotypes in a like an ironic way it's like it's the same argument well similar argument to the should black people use the n-word if they want the n-word to disappear mm. and it's like it's, it's kind of the same thing like what responsibility I suppose you can't speak on behalf of the black people but what responsibility would you think of as a Jewish person to try and keep the comedy? Um, I suppose I suppose you've already answered it a little bit by saying you know you are you're trying to go one step above and mock the ridiculousness of it in the first place, but to even the potential of ironing out that material and just being like, I don't even need to say I'm a Jew in the first place because why bother? Yeah, it, you know, it, it's uh, it's an interesting discussion because I also, I, I feel a bit disappointed when I see someone from any minority or group get on stage and just do all the, the usual stuff about what you've, or you've heard a million times about them. I want to know you, you know, so that's why like I've I've got some material that deals in those stereotypes, but it always comes back to how I feel about it what's you know what is it about me that that I'm showing in that performance um you know and you're right it is you know a lot of Jewish comedians do go up and they kind of almost underline those stereotypes by talking about them and you know I've seen you know black comics get up and you know they talk about like black people having big dicks and you know it's just like all right man like I'm not you're talking about what you want to talk about like it's fine it's it's your art it's your space but it's like tell me tell me something new tell me something new about the black experience or your your personal experience as a black person just you know or as a gay person as a trans person whatever as a Jewish person um I can't remember what your your, your like actual question was it was just like what do, do we feel like a responsibility to it or yeah I mean like do you do you think that like, do you think that there should be a responsibility from from people to um, to, con to to I suppose it's still self censoring, or do you think it would be like to to do what you're doing, which is going one step above and trying to mock the ridiculousness of these stereotypes and say basically these stereotypes are stupid, so to try and change people's perspective, or do you think it would be more useful to basically iron out? the jokes and just not make those jokes and in the hope that they would just disappear yeah no i don't i don't think we should iron them out because well i think what people like when someone's on stage is they like to hear from people who are different we don't you know do you want to hear do you want to see a guy who looks like you sounds like you has your life experience just talk about things that you only you relate to like i don't know i don't like there should you you want to be able to relate to what they're saying in some way but i want to know what makes you you and if what makes you 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 know often it is your your race religion sexuality gender identification whatever it is um i think ironing that out as you say would would make it a bit more boring but again it just comes down to yeah, and I'm I'm not the arbiter in this. I only have my opinion. Ultimately, the audience is 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 the the arbiter in this. If the audience is enjoying it and laughing, then good for you. You know, again, it's not about you. It's about giving them a good night. Um, 
you know, and, and everyone has different tastes, right? So, you know, someone might be absolutely killing with jokes that I hate, but the audience is loving it. And I'd like, I resent them. I resent the audience for it, but that's just, that's just my opinion. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. I can't, I'm not going to stop that person doing it or tell them to stop if that's what's working for them. Yeah. One thing I found that I just noticed just because, um, there is a lot of Jewish people in this scene specifically, mm. like, and I wonder what, I wonder why that is. I wonder if, yeah, I wonder why that is. Because for example, in my life up until recently, not met that many Jews overall. And percentage wise, there's not that many Jews compared to non-Jews. Um, but then here, there's quite a lot and the scene is quite small and there's quite a lot percentage wise. I wonder what that, why that is. Um, it could be a number of reasons. I mean, certainly, you know, stand-up comedy is is a very big part of kind of, a, or, or you know, self-deprecation even, even True. without the, the thing of being a comedy is, is a huge part of the Jewish experience. You know, Jewish people are very funny, generally creative people. That's why I always laugh when people are like, oh, the Jews, you know, they control the movie industry. It's like, yeah, because actually you know in, at the time when when hollywood started to to boom jewish people weren't allowed to have other jobs they had mm. to create and they could they could work in banking <laughs> why all the jews control the banks because they had to um and they basically created an industry which is the the movie and entertainment industry because what else were they going to do so um i so i do think yeah you find you find a lot of Jewish people in and around comedy, whether it's performing or producing. Here in particular, I've got no idea. I mean, you know, it's there's there's not a huge Jewish community in Barcelona in general, but there are a lot of people here from cities like New York and London mm. where there is quite a high uh, density of Jewish people. Um, yeah, I honestly couldn't tell you. I just maybe it's just something in our in our bones that that draws us to it. Um, People don't realize, I don't think a lot of people realize, you know, there, there's, I think I read this 0.02% of the world's population uh, are, are Jews, which is one in 5,000. It's, it's like, I think it's something like 14 million people, right, in the world, which is nothing. That's like, uh, like, you know, the whole thing with Kanye West. Uh, he has 18 million followers on Instagram, right? Like, that's to sort of put it in perspective of all, all that kind of thing. So, um, it is interesting then to see like a higher density of Jewish people in, in stand-up comedy, maybe over-indexing than you might expect from that percentage of people. And I think it's, I think Jewish people are drawn to something where you get to express your pain and your anxieties in front of a group of people who will listen to you. <laughs> you know, I think that's, that is something that's sort of in our culture. I say ours, so like, Again, like I said, I'm a fake Jew, so I grew up around a lot of the culture, but I never really, really identified with it properly. You got the blood in the genes, though, and that's the most important thing, I think. Yeah, and I actually, I think comedy has brought me closer to my roots because, you know, when I'm writing these jokes, I'm starting to research more because I want to be informed, but also just emotionally, it makes me feel more connected to it. You know, I've... I've I've been really enjoying like talking to my family members recently, just asking them more about like their upbringings or, you know, um, I was in Prague recently for a show and I spent two out of the three days walking around synagogues. I never would have done that before because mm. I, I, the more I talk about it on stage, the more I do feel this responsibility of like, well, who the hell am I to talk about this stuff when I'm not, I haven't really followed it. I don't want to disrespect anyone um, who really 
does feel strongly Jewish by making like stupid jokes about it or claiming that I'm Jewish. When, you know, that's that, the name fake Jews is a funny name with a pun, but it, it's generally like it's it kind of sums up kind of how I felt writing mm. it as well a little bit. Because when I because I knew that um, when I saw that, I didn't realize that you had Jewish roots. I knew um, that. Um, what's his face? Uh, Luke. Luke. Uh, yeah. I knew that Luke is a Jew. And so, but then I was like, oh, that's, that's strange that it would be like, have that name for someone who's non-Jew to be, to be involved in that. And yeah, I was like, I was what like, you thought of me. <laughs> yeah, I was, well, I was, I was just like, that's strange. <laughs> I just, but, you know I mean, it's like, whatever goes, that's fine. But I was like, oh, that's odd. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I'm really, I'm very, I've always been very fascinated with Jews in general. And I started learning Hebrew for a bit. Um, I switched over to Arabic because I feel that's going to be more useful for now. But then I will go back to learning Hebrew um, at some point. But I don't know virtually anything about Jewish history apart from like biblical Jewish history. Mm -hmm. So I know like the beginning story of the Jews um, from the Bible and then nothing after that. But like for now, I'm, I'm, I've spent the past like, I don't know, six months or so learning about African struggles and African, the African experience, basically. Um, and once I'm done with that in a year or two, then I'm going to go on to the Jewish experience and learn about that. Because I think that marginalized groups are fascinating. Africa is fascinating because mm. of the kingdoms and everything they had. Um, and to then have that kind of stripped away, then be enslaved. And then, you know, you have a whole load of Africa that's left in total poverty um and then you have you know people spread around everywhere and south africa which is just i've just finished trevor noah's book um called born a crime and like that to me that it's called born a crime because he is mixed race so what they mm. call colored um with a an african mother and a dutch dutch or swiss father um so colored and that like being born colored was a crime because it was a crime for the whites and the blacks to mix so then you like grow up in this weird limbo where you're not accepted by the whites you're not accepted by the blacks and he was also not accepted by the coloreds because he grew up with a black mother because his father left and then he grew up around all the africans so like in his heart and soul he was black but his skin side otherwise and you're supposed to only really mix with your own color mm. and so he just tells his story growing up about that and i'm like Fuck, I never thought of it like that. Mm. Like the actual laws of segregation and apartheid, well, apartheid for them. Like, I just never thought about that. It's insane. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. I enjoyed that. And then I've got Malcolm X, his autobiography next. And then I'm just like, it's just so crazy to think that this level of discrimination has been relatively recently. Even the Holocaust like less than a hundred years ago yeah it's insane like i've just i just i just released a poem today called everyone's fucked and like the reason i got thinking about it was because i started thinking about generational trauma and thinking that the world war was only two generations away so like a lot of people have grandparents who experienced that mm. and then they had all these fucked up things happening um like millions of people dying, your friends, your family, your brothers, your sisters, like everything like that. Then they have to deal with all of that trauma, have no like 
resources to deal with it in terms of like you couldn't just easily go on, on the internet and watch a YouTube video with someone like this is some CBT cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy for you they had to just like carry on and mm. rebuild the country and not really process any of it then that gets passed down then that gets passed down then it's no wonder you end up with like global opioid crises, crises and drug crises and in England you know like alcohol and drug problems like rife problems it's like this is so recent you know and these type of things must take so long to smooth out and to at least be understood so I'm just trying to like learn more about these horrible experiences that people have I've had to live through. Yeah, and it's you know it's a shame that most of the world don't have your um, ability to to seek knowledge and understanding like that. I think people are getting uh, more and more entrenched in this sort of tribal thing where you know my team's right and your team's wrong, and the the, the sort of death of nuance, right, um, is 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 difficult and you know, bring it back to the kind of the topic before is, you know, that does start making it quite difficult as a performer because I think the best comedians do deal in, in the, the kind of the gray space in between the, the different extremes. And you do get people like, oh, that person doesn't believe what I believe. Therefore, they're a dickhead. You know, mm. it's just like, it doesn't matter what side you're on. That's a really shitty uh, perspective to have. You know, it, um, it really is. But um no, it's cool that you're doing that. I mean, I, uh, I know very little about the religious side of the the Jewish story. I mean, I remember like reading, you know, obviously the the Bible, and the Old Testament, which is a Christian book, but it talks a lot about you know the origins, um, sections of the Torah, that kind of thing. Mm. But I also have less interest in it. Like, I'd like to look, sit down with it, and because I think that's where you start to understand where people's fundamental beliefs come from, is those scriptures. But I'm more interested right now in, in just like the history of the community um, in different times, different places. I'm reading a book right now called The Last Jew, which is a, a fictional book but based around the time of the Spanish Inquisition when the Jews were expelled uh, from, from Spain. Obviously now living in Spain, it's you know, some interesting additional context to that. Um, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing I'm connecting to because I, I, you know, another stereotype of, of Jewish people is that we have, you know, we're hypochondriacs, we have anxiety a lot. Uh, and I think a lot of that does come from, from centuries, even millennia of certain groups being persecuted, chased, hunted, murdered. Uh, do you know what, do you, have you heard of epigenetics? Yes. Yeah. So this side, and I'm, again, I might be completely brutalizing, but this idea that like memories and emotions and experiences and trauma can actually be carried through generations through yeah. through your genes and i i honestly think that if they ever prove that to be true it would make so much sense of uh, of so much of the world i think i think that is what a lot of people for instance in, in buddhism uh call karma you know this yeah, idea 100%. of taking things from a past life into a new life uh I don't know if we're going to have time to get into this, but I, I grew up actually with my mum practicing Buddhism. So I practice a particular type of Buddhism for a while. And I really believe. Which in type? Um, so it's the Buddhism of Nichiren Daishonin. So it's like a, a kind of lay Buddhism uh, that came out of Japan um, and is, I suppose, relatively new to some of the others. But it's less about um, kind of quiet meditation and enlightenment and more about being out there in the world, trying to make a difference. Um, 
that's a whole other podcast probably but we but but we do believe in, in karma right and caught this law of cause and effect so any cause you put out in the world you can expect to have some kind of effect based on it um and buddhists do believe in, in reincarnation i love the idea of it but the skeptic the skeptic in me doesn't necessarily if i can't see it then i won't fully believe in it but i do think that this idea of you know we 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 pass on through our genes to to our next of kin our our experiences and our trauma i think for me that is reincarnation because i mean we are you know the cells in the body are physically being reincarnated all the time i mean reincarnate is not the word but you know refreshed created but the the, the genetics are kind of stay the same right um so i do think you know i'm someone who does suffer quite a lot from anxiety and a bit of hypochondria and there's no real reason for me to have that um and a lot of my family do and and i think it's because there were not very long ago people in our family who were literally being hunted to death and were mm. constantly in fight or flight or mostly flight mode and it you know it doesn't take a lot to to trigger that in me um or for it just to come up um you know and i think that could be true not just of jewish people but anyone who suffers from anxiety there's something in there that's whether a trauma in their life that they've left or the life that their ancestors have led that kind of floats on through the generations basically yeah i i love everything you've just said i'm a huge believer that this is what got me onto the whole thing about generational trauma you know like because there's one thing that's just you know my parents are have i'm not saying mine but just saying like someone's parents have psychological issues therefore the children are more likely to have psychological issues because they see the parent you know like environmentally seeing them do it and like Okay, true. That's probably more likely anyway. But I also believe that I believe our body is a bit pretty much like a hard drive and everything that you experience is stored in some way or another. And um there's a brilliant documentary called E Hytham Motion. Um and it basically talks about how each of our organs stores different emotions. And this is like I can't remember it to the exactly I don't want to bastardize it, but I think it's proved or very close to being proved. Like, for example, the ones I remember is that anger is stored in the liver. So an excess of anger in the body, unprocessed anger, will lead to liver problems, which makes sense because of um, the more alcohol you drink. After a certain amount of time, you'll end up getting angry. Um, well, a lot of people will because it's unprocessed anger uh, in there. And grief comes in the lungs. So, for example, old people, when their partners die or animals die, they have a much higher chance of um, pulmonary issues. Um, then there's a few other, well, the other organs, I can't remember which ones are which, but um, these emotions are stored there. And it makes sense because what are emotions? Emotions are certain reactions within us. What are reactions? You know, chemicals, hormones, um, neuromodulators, all these different things. Those are all produced in different places within the body. So it makes sense that if uh, a certain experience happens to you, certain, let's just call them chemicals within inside you, certain chemicals will be being produced, which will aid in that emotion. So it makes sense that that emotion would have some sort of lingering effect in the same way that the, the easiest way for me to conceptualize a lot of things is like training your muscles. You go to the gym, you make little tears in your muscle and they will get stronger. And then if you stop training, 
your muscles go down a bit. But then when you start again, that memory's still there. So it's very quickly to go up again. It's the same with the emotions processing in your body, that if you don't process them, you'll end up with certain different ailments in your body. You know, stress can cause tons of different illnesses. You can cause your skin to come out in rashes, it can cause acne, it can cause, you know, problems with your heart, problems with your breathing, everything. That's just from stress. And I believe that within our genes, our genetics and our DNA, things are stored. And then, you know, like depending on your, depending on the state of the man at the time of conception, I believe that the, the physical state and the balance of chemicals and hormones and everything in the body, that will have an impact on the sperm. Out of the millions of sperm, that will have an impact on the sperm, which is the one that's propelled forwards and has the energy. And then the woman will have her egg which the egg that will have grown will have also been a manifestation of her physical state at the time of um, when the egg is growing um, and being released. And then when the baby is actually conceived, then it's growing in the woman. And then all of the, woman, the woman's experience and what she's consuming, what she's seeing, everything, that's shaping how the baby's growing. It's shaping which genes are turned on and off. But, you know, the main idea between epigenetics at the moment and things that they're trying is that to being able to manually turn on and off certain genes mm. like for example there's a gene that we have in our body which means that we if the, if this gene were turned on we wouldn't need to consume vitamin c animals don't need to consume vitamin c at some point we didn't but for whatever reason that was evolved out of us now we must consume vitamin c or we'll get scurvy mm. but that can be turned back on but if that's turned back on, then what does that do? You know, like, why has that been turned off in the first place? But, like, maybe you have a gene which is causing you more levels of anxiety. Probably there's loads of genes which are doing it. But they can be turned off. But then what's that going to do to you? Yeah. And it's like, this is the whole epigenetic thing, which I think is super fascinating. Um, but super scary. Yeah, well, yeah. So we start sort of genetically engineering humans and things like that. It kind of gets gets interesting um but then you know it's funny when you look at stuff like that because it's like well there's a reason why there must be a reason why we have this quest for for that knowledge and we are going down that route of the tech tree there must be something we're seeking and searching and i suppose even though it feels unnatural the fact that we as humans have evolved to the point to be exploring those things and changing those things i guess in essence makes it natural because we are human um so yeah it's um you know there's i think some some people have the same discussions right about kind of ai and robots and you know do we just upload our consciousness to a computer and, and escape this kind of meat wagon that we carry mm -hmm. around and you know we can live for however long we need to as as robots or just in in a computer <laughs> this is getting really fringe now um yeah it's it's uh but I just, I do, I just, I really, I really feel that this idea of emotions and the, those kind of really raw things that you sometimes can't explain that you feel are, are more than just a, a mental thing, but they're actually encoded deep within you and in, in your genetics. And, you know, and I think also uh, can be potentially changed mm -hmm. uh, in the lifetime that you have now, you know, you could make steps to change those things um but I, I i do you know we are at a, 
the accumulation of all our ancestors sort of hopes dreams worries yeah you know good times etc etc i i believe in that for sure and i yeah i think that like we yeah we are the final product of that whole family line but we will continue with all the negative parts of our family line until you get the consciousness to realize wait a minute i'm fucked up in this way this way this way this way but let's try stop that Mm. And I think that now we're at the stage where all the information we could possibly need about pretty much everything is available. So if you want to, you can change your life and you can cure yourself for free, effectively. Yeah. You know, like, whereas that would never have happened before. So it's like there, there there's concepts within um, different parts of spirituality that that relate to this and many different traditions have got different versions of it. But it's like the generation keeps going and the shit will keep happening and keep repeating itself until there's someone that says no and breaks the chain mm -hmm. and kind of starts then their own new chain. And of course that person will end up having their own shit. But you're, you're breaking the chain of like this previous shit that's going on that really you're like, why do I feel these things? Like, why am I randomly feeling all these weird emotions or like fear of failure or these like stupid things? It's like that has no logical base within, you know, it's not like not like you were molested when you were a child and that's caused all these problems or like you know some concrete things have happened it's just these things are within you mm. for no actual reason really um it's about undoing them but i think it's i think it's so cool i think it's so cool to be at this stage where you can do it and i think that now more than ever it's important to look back to the ancient texts um and you know the things you're mentioning about karma reincarnation they've explained all of these things in many texts um different religions buddhism hinduism mm. christianity um but they did not explain it in a way that we were ready for and now science is trying to prove it in a way that people will accept because it's scientifically so mm. you know i think that karma will be scientifically proven through things like epigenetics and the storage of emotions stuff i say okay they were calling this karma what karma actually means in our modern day scientific terms that we're happy with is this plus this equals this minus CO2 plus 59 something. And then people are like, oh, okay. And then it moves on and like reincarnation, this is what reincarnation is. But I think that they are all things. People wouldn't have spent yeah. thousands of years like studying in their way, studying, dedicating their lives to these things that don't exist. Yeah, I mean, what you're touching on there is, is one of my favorite, um, I guess it's still somewhat fringe science um theories is is that so uh, you know uh, you might know that they've been discovering recently um, evidence of civilizations that go way way back mm. in time than we ever considered before and, and have you seen ancient apocalypse uh not wait is that the more recent one that's that came the, out? that's the, the, the more Graham recent Hancock netflix one. Hancock, yeah 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 so oh, i mean some of the stuff he comes out with, I, I find a bit weird, but uh, I I do really like this theory that you know they found this place in Turkey, is it Gopekli Tepe or something, yeah. where where it's like it precedes the pyramids by like ten thousand years, and but people refute it by saying well there's no evidence of of any like human existence there, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's one thing that kind of keeps me awake at night sometimes is this idea that's like, well, you know, what if they did have really really advanced what we might call technology that was just down a completely different tree yeah, and it could 100%. have been more like nature based they could have even been 
different types of human or if you want to go even further like they might have even been not from this planet Mm. and had come here and then that's sort of we've somehow evolved from that um aliens um but it's this the way i think about it is is like if our species was very suddenly wiped out we're not even suddenly if we were just wiped out over the next hundred years uh almost entirely and over that time you you know our, our buildings our infrastructure crumbled over millennia um but somewhere buried in a in a bunker somewhere there is a working server like a, a, a which is submitting like a Wi-Fi signal, but in five thousand years' time, how would you even begin to conceive of the concept of Wi-Fi if you didn't know about yeah. it? That there is a signal floating in the air that, with the right elements of technology that you need to invent, you can tap into that signal and check what the football score was in two thousand and twenty-two, mm. January fifteenth or whatever. You just wouldn't. You wouldn't. So, in the same respect, how can we? possibly know for sure that these people that potentially existed 10,000 years before the Egyptians and, and in the pyramids had some form of technology that we just we just because of the, the decisions we've taken have absolutely no concept of yeah you know we just know what we know right because that's what we've grown up with and that that kind of thing just like it spins me round and round oh, and round because the, the possibilities and the idea that you know, we only use certain senses and there's some animals that use like, you know, 10, 15 mm. different senses, you know, so there's frequencies of color and sound and everything that we can't And see. sight as well, like yeah. seeing and seeing ultraviolet and things like that. Yeah, like we can only, reality is perception, right? So it's, it's this, um, yeah, that, I, I, I love consuming all that Graham Hancock stuff mm. about these ancient civilizations and things. It's uh, it's absolutely, it's fascinating to me massively. Yeah, I, I think about it all the fucking time and I, I absolutely love it as well and one thing that i y- you mentioned again you know about going down a different route and it's like to me that's just totally logical that <coughs> if humans have been around for you know a million years or whatever it is that things will have been tried and tested tried and tested tried and tested and if there's some sort of cataclysm that's destroyed stuff every so often which is you know the theories think there are you know a, a storm or a flood or or whatever or an ice age all these things and sea levels have changed probably there's loads of stuff dumped around everywhere and you know cities that are under the sea and things like that and even you know discovering like in the jungle places that haven't been seen and even underground like in turkey in ancient apocalypse when they have um under cappadocia they've got these massive underground cities mm. uh like something like between 50 and 100 of these underground cities in turkey which is nuts um but yeah like technologies using i think that it would have they would have used more vibrations sound light um and senses that we that we don't think of i've heard theories that um they used to be able to move rock with sound vibrations so that's like I've heard a theory about that for the for the pyramid, which I thought was really cool. Obviously, I want that to be true. Yeah, but... well, I'm trying to remember that again. It's, I can barely remember what it was. I think it might have been in that ancient apocalypse show, where they were talking about how they think that civilization found a way simply by using some kind of numerical system to create an element of kinetic energy or something like that. Does this is this ringing any bell? It is. I'm not sure if it was in ancient apocalypse. I can't remember what it was now, but it was just like it, it felt. It sounded like magic. Sacred geometry. 
it might have been sacred geometry um but yeah just all stuff like that is you know we we are so sure that we are like the most technologically advanced because everything we know ourselves is new to us because everything's always new right but I, I how could we how could we be so sure yeah like millions of years ago there wasn't a race of something here that had a completely different tech tree that was mm. way beyond our own capacity in the same way that if they came here now they probably wouldn't know what the hell the internet was they couldn't could possibly conceive of it maybe they had another way of communicating broadly across the planet that we hadn't thought of yeah one thing i think is really cool that i've heard about recently is there's a team that's using vibrations so i can't remember what the documentary was but basically it starts off by saying that if you get a wine glass and you um, rub your ring, rub your thing around the ring of the wine glass. It'll um, emit a certain frequency. Mm. If you get a pitchfork, a tuning fork, to emit that same frequency, it will then reverberate, and the wine glass will smash um, because it basically like it, the vibration matches, and it then it just keeps going faster and faster and faster. The same way that if you on a get feedback on a microphone, yeah. it goes like, um, and then there was there's the example of that, and then. There's this bridge called like the the vibrating bridge or something or the collapsing bridge, the big like long massive car carrying bridge, and so everything has its own frequency that it vibrates at, uh, and this was vibrating at its own little frequency, and the wind somehow managed to hit the same frequency, and then it started going like this, matching it, and just like collapsed just from the wind like that, and then these scientists started trying to destroy cells, and they basically spent years and years and years like trying all these different frequencies to destroy these cancer cells. They managed to find it, I think it was the 11, like 11,000 11, hertz um, with the 13th harmonic, so that's 13 times 11,000. They fired those two together and they could destroy cancer cells wow. with no, like it's only the cancer cells which will get destroyed and it's only probably one very specific type of cancer. Yeah, yeah. But all that means is that given enough time, they'll be able to find the frequencies of all the different tumors and cancer cells and destroy those and that's that's fascinating i mean that's just like bring it back to the buddhism thing there's, there's one of the core elements of of this practice that, that i do is 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 this idea that everything is constantly vibrating to mm -hmm. some kind of frequency whether it's a solid thing like a table or if it's the air around you or it's the cells in your own body and um we we believe that through doing the daily practice which is which is a form of meditation but it's chanting so you're chanting these like japanese words kind of somewhat rhythmically and repetitively mm -hmm. which in it of itself creates a vibration within you you know you feel that if you just like you would if you were talking and buddhists uh, talk a lot about sort of being like in rhythm with the universe which sounds very hippy dippy but what that really means is kind of what you're saying is you know is Sometimes you just feel like everything is going for you or going against yeah, you that yeah. day. And we call that in rhythm or out of rhythm. And, I, you know, it's kind of linked a little bit to the, the science that you were saying. It's, it's just like if you can kind of tap into that vibration that we all share on certain frequencies. Um, you know, I don't think it's that's why I, I don't think it's like it's a it's a God up there that's dictating this stuff. I think we have it all within us and within the universe and the physical world. It's just we don't really know how to explain it or or to to harness it i guess but bring it back to the arts i'm going to segue back to, to the art stuff but that's what's so beautiful about what we do you know comedy spoken word uh music is is that it kind of transcends all that right because it's it's um it's about creating human connection in this 
fucked up world that we can't really explain and we're still trying to explore and discover how things work scientifically it's something some reason that we respond to and watching another human in a room share something artistic that we we love in it and it's maybe you we will be able to explain that through science at some point you know the hormones it releases in your brain to do it or to watch it but um that's like the, that's a really kind of beautiful thing about about getting up there and, and and doing this is is like so i i used to dj a lot uh and the the biggest buzz i ever would get would be like finding a track in a record store uh new or old but that excitement but i can't wait to drop this on the dance floor because i think people are going to go nuts to this and it's i'm going to watch them like throw their arms in the air and dance and and it was like i didn't make the song but I am in some way controlling the environment by playing that song at that moment and connecting with people in that moment. And I realized after doing comedy, you know, only a few weeks in, I was getting the exact same emotions from uh, telling a joke and eliciting like a, a laughter response from people. Cause it's like, ah, oh, I've said, it's something I thought of, I wrote down, I said out loud and people heard it and they involuntarily laughed mm. and it is it is it's, it's kind of it's this connection you can create with people in that moment which is just it's that for me is like that's like magic yeah yeah it is very cool and um like even the words it, since i started thinking more about vibrations even like we use the word i like his vibe yeah. you know and it's like or in in, in poetry people use the word oh that resonated with me mm. and it's like even the language we're using is saying like that resonated with me that what you're saying there your little buzzing that you're sending out your little vibrations making me vibrate in a certain little way that's making me feel something like that is it's literally maybe it maybe it is literally resonating with me and i'm resonating in a different way because of your words that are like yeah, I mean, it's and it's the same way that you know we use devices like alliteration or onomatopoeia or all, the, all those things, or you know, or even just the the order in which we put words in the things that we were saying in our poems or our, or our comedy. It makes a huge just moving the word the a couple of words forward or back can completely change the entire impact that a joke has on people. It's it's uh, it's so interesting how not just the language but the sound of the language uh, when when you're saying something or even this the negative space in between what you're saying as well it all has this this weird chemical impact on people's brains that either makes them laugh or doesn't make them laugh yeah i find that with like especially with rhyme like mm. i struggle to write anything that doesn't rhyme um but rhyme it just makes me feel so satisfied it's it it's like a harmonic in, in music that it, it just it's just right it just it it matches it and in a harmonic in music is literally vibration you know it's it's mm. it's a, a factor of that it's a factor of the hurt the the amount of vibration of that so i guess that rhyme in some weird mathematical way probably is a factor of that as well and um even when I hear rap or something in another language that I don't understand, when I hear the rhyme in it, I'm like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And it just, it brings me that. I'm like, oh, yeah, this makes me feel so nice. Even though I have no idea what they're saying. Yeah. Just these two words that are rhyming together. I'm like, oh, that, that feels so satisfying. Yeah. There must be like 
literature on this out there somewhere. I, I now think I really want to read some books about why th things like rhyming and harmonies like actually make us feel that satisfaction. Like people must have studied this. It must be out there. I don't know if you've got any recommendations. Uh, I don't <laughs> know yet. No, I think that this is a topic where um, you you would probably be better off going to like ancient literature. I would say that they probably know all about it. Mm. And now it's the type of stuff where it's starting to get studied again now um, because it's it's somehow more relevant now. I don't know why, but people that are studying these type of things are thinking, okay, let's look back at this ancient literature and let's take something from it and let's figure out why these people were doing that because they're probably right. Yeah, It's like even things like prayer, chanting that you're saying, like regardless of the fact of if there's a God or not, unimportant, those practices meditation gratitude prayer chanting those all have studied benefits to you strong strong benefits um and so it's like you know pray doesn't matter who you pray to yeah practice gratitude like say i am so grateful for this and try and actually feel it and your life will improve yeah regardless of who you're praying to or you don't talk to anyone it's like these practices within and if you do it in a group of people that experience is heightened and the results are heightened for some reason doing it in a group is it gives you a stronger response i don't know why and that's i suppose why these communities and religions start mm. yeah. but, um so i think we'll wrap it up now before we end do you have anything that you'd like to plug where can people find you uh so yeah, it was like a weird segue to go from we, we went we, we went deep there yeah, yeah, I, was like, yeah. I, I listened to your podcast before i was like i know you get deep but we, we went like really into the reads. I enjoyed that. Um, so yeah, listen, I, I post most stuff about my comedy and life, etc., on my Instagram. Um, so my Instagram handle is J Regal. That's R E G A L junior. Um, but like the, I need a new Instagram handle. I shouldn't have to explain it. So J Regal J N R or just search James Regal, uh, on Instagram um or like the show specifically so there's roast battle barcelona on instagram as well i also do a fun uh kind of speed dating based comedy show oh called, i came uh, to that by accident yeah you were really good on that though actually <laughs> i think you ended up making a friend through that i did so. make a friend yeah, yeah so my girlfriend wasn't so happy about me going speed dating <laughs> but i thought it was like it was called it's called lolly amorous lolly amorous yeah, yeah. yeah so then I, I came and i was like oh this will just be some sort of like comedy show thing then like i'll put your name on a on a little ticket I was like, why? And they're like, a speed date. And I was like, oh, but like, a joke. They're like, mm, no. I was like, I've got a girlfriend. They're like, yeah, it doesn't matter. I was like, fine. Yeah. Like, first person to get pulled, like, come on. I was like, for fuck's sake. It's fine. Look, it's, you know, it's, it's, <gasps> it's obviously based around speed dating and romance, but it's really just a fun way of getting two people on stage who've never met before to like talk to each other. And then we, we interview them after the minutes up to, to find out more about them and, sometimes we never know where the conversation is going to go like we we talk about love lives and dating but sometimes it just goes off in completely random directions depending what it is so yeah that's super fun that's the second friday of every month at the clubhouse and the roast battle we do like two or three shows a month in various venues and things so okay awesome and before we end as is tradition do you well what are your words of wisdom for our listeners oh my words of wisdom wasn't prepared for this kind of yeah i don't um, i don't let anyone get prepared fine i think just don't be can i swear on this yeah don't be a cunt like 
we've talked a lot about left and right, extreme this, extreme that. For me, it's all one part of the same thing. It's just like, if I could reframe modern sort of dialogue on, on these things, I'd stop talking in terms of left and right, and I'd be like, let's have the not-cunts and the cunts, and let's all just try and be on the not-cunt side a little bit. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's what I'd say. Just Just be nice. <laughs> Try and be nice. That is some great wisdom there from James. Also, a very cool surname. Regal. Yeah, people think it's a stage name and it's not. It's my actual name. <laughs> yeah, well, you're very lucky, Daz. I think that that can be the mark of a great performer when you're born with a good stage name. <laughs> you see, I, I realized recently my name's Connor Monaghan and I'm like, Connor Monaghan, that rhymes. Connor Mona. And I'm like, yeah. no wonder I'm a rhyming poet. doesn't just rhyme. It sounds nice to set Connor Monaghan it's mm -hmm. like yeah that's cool no, I, I think we won't get too into this because we're wrapping up but I think Regal is probably a made up slash adapted surname given that my family gave itself when they were running away from whichever horrible group of people were trying to hunt them down uh, we originate from kind of somewhere in Eastern Europe. So, oh. yeah, I don't, I don't think... I like the idea that they, that my family, maybe when they first came to England, thought, what's a what's a British-sounding name? Uh, let's call ourselves Regal. And I just like, that would be something I would do. It's kind of a bit pretentious. And so I'd like, I like to think they just sort of came up with like what they thought would be a cool British name. But I don't think that's the truth. I think it's just like adep adapted from like probably Rikhailov or something like that. But yeah. Ah, uh, interesting. And one last thing, I have a little present. Oh. I just say, uh, before I came on, I got sent a physical invitation for it's this show. It's a amazing. Oh my God, I got a t-shirt as well. Yeah. Should I show it to the camera? Oh, you're wearing one. Yeah. That is, hang on, where's the camera? It's there. Look at that. That is gorgeous. And it's got the back as well. I actually really need some new t-shirts as well. Oh, so you've got me a massive favor there. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, thanks so much for having you. It's been awesome. I've loved the little rabbit holes that we went down on. Yeah. Um, you never know what you're going to get into and you come on the Quest Wisdom podcast. So check your post box, people, and see who gets a letter. No, I'm not just going to send them out randomly, sadly. Maybe I will. I knows? think you should. I think that'd be more exciting. Just, it's just to be, open your post one day and be like, oh, I'm going on a podcast yeah. next week. <laughs> that'd be awesome. Here's a first class plane ticket. Like, yeah. No, sorry, I can't afford that. But one day, maybe, yes. All right. Farewell, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Quest for Wisdom podcast with your host, Connor Monaghan. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to support the show, then please like it, subscribe, and leave a review on whichever platform you are using. This small act is a massive help and is hugely appreciated. You can find more information about all of our guests on thequestforwisdom.com and follow us at the Quest for Wisdom on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for exciting updates. We also have a Patreon account for anyone who would like to contribute towards the running of the show. Finally, I would like to thank the Comedy Clubhouse in Barcelona for allowing us to record here and for their ongoing support. If you are ever in Barcelona, make sure to check it out for daily shows of comedy and performance art in English. Farewell for now.